Welcome to IMTV. I'm Alan Keyes, and this is Let's Talk America. Uh, today, I'm going to be getting into something uh, with Cal Beisner, who has been on the show before. I'm sure you all are getting to know him. Uh, he's uh, from the Cornwall Alliance, and they look at things from a perspective that can be very useful uh, in dealing with the nature of the situation we find ourselves in right now as a people. Uh, we're in the midst of crisis, and it's not one crisis. As it's turning out, it has many facets and features, uh, but I think it's a crisis that portends serious difficulty as we move into the future because we have surrendered basic standards that once disciplined our mind, our conscience, our thought, and our ability to have reasonable discourse with each other. Uh, there are examples that abound. We've been going through one with this whole coronavirus crisis, uh, but the climate change crisis has also been with us for a while and illustrates some of the same difficulties. Uh, we're going to talk about that and talk it through a little bit uh, as to its implications uh, for what really is now becoming greater and greater evidence that we are in a crisis as a people, as a nation, and, and potentially, given the importance of science overall to our civilization, uh, as a civilization. Uh, we'll be back after this word. Hi, I'm Alan Keyes. I just want to let you know that on a recurring basis every Tuesday, we're going to have a guest, Mike Adams, the Health Ranger. He's going to be joining us to talk about the whole array of challenges, both in terms of our health as a people and as individuals, and our health as a nation. We'll be looking at those things through the eyes of someone who has thought deeply about many things and who has many great ideas to share with me and with you and with everyone who tunes in to Let's Talk America on Tuesdays when we meet with the Health Ranger to talk about how we sustain the health of our liberty. Welcome back. Well, my guest today is Cal Beisner. Welcome to the show, Cal. Always great to uh, have you with us. I, I look forward to a good discussion of something uh, that I think, uh, at one time I would have thought it a little bit of a longer term concern, but in light of all the evidence that's piling up, I think we're reaching a stage where the substitution of ideological purpose, emotional purpose, and all of these different <coughs> tendencies that, uh, in a way, defy the discipline that's required for modern science, and indeed, for the rational thought that underlies it, um, that we're headed in a direction where all the things that then depend upon the integrity of that science are going to be threatened. Um, and yes. one of the areas where that's been true for the longest time has been climate change. We're now seeing, I think, in the midst of the coronavirus crisis, uh, that it's liable to become critically important uh, for our ability or the failure of our ability to deal with health care. And finally, it has yes. implications in the end also uh, for whether or not, by, s by abandoning what had been an understanding that there is a true way to think, uh, rather than a way that is now being criticized, I suppose, as an artifact of patriarchalism and white supremacy and any other drivel people want to come up with, uh, they, they are sort of, we're going down a road, uh, which I think portends not just the failure of our science, but of everything that depended on the rational discipline that underlies it. Uh, and that could mean pretty much the whole of the civilization we've gotten used to. Uh, but uh, I know that you've been working on that, and you were telling me about an interesting article that you've written that I think is a good illustration of this. Uh, why don't we start there? Okay, thanks very much. Glad to be back with you, Alan. Um, you know, I've been for some 20 years now dealing with the uh, outrageous claims of dangerous man-made global warming yeah. uh, and, and, you know, refuting climate alarmists counterfactual claims is kind of like playing whack-a-mole. You smack this one and, and 10 others pop up here, there and everywhere else. Well, there's a, sort of a whole genre that I would call climate, apop uh, climate apocalyptic propaganda videos. 
And the latest in that category seems to have come online just yesterday on YouTube, uh, a film called The Final Years of Majuro. Now, Majuro is the capital city of the Marshall Islands, which are actually a U.S. territory in the South Pacific, uh, probably best known for the fact that back in the 1950s, we did above-ground nuclear testing there. Uh, the fascinating thing is that there don't appear to have been long-term negative effects from that. Life is thriving on all of the different Marshall Islands. Yeah. Uh, but that's a different topic entirely. Uh, but this film tells us, with all the supposed authority of science, that the Marshall Islands uh, will disappear if global average temperature rises beyond 1.5 degrees Celsius above the pre-industrial uh, times. Now, since that's a claim about the future, it obviously can't be a claim based on thermometer readings from the future. <laughs> we can't do those yet, right? So, right? so where does it come from? And like so many of these claims, um, you know, it, it would be very tempting to say that it basically comes from emotion, not mm. from science at all. Mm. Uh, the, the real high point of this video uh, comes when they show the Marshall Islands poet, uh, Kathy Jetnil Kijner, reading aloud to the attendees of the, 19, the 2015 uh, climate summit in Paris, UN uh, function, a poem that she wrote for her newborn daughter about the imminent disappearance of their beloved islands. Uh, it's a very, very emotional point. And after the, after the video shows that, it goes to an interview with the poet. And she says, I think poetry forces people to slow down and connect to the emotion of the issue rather than just facts and data. Mm. That's, it's really hard for me, uh, Alan, to think of anything that better illustrates the, the real problem that's facing us now, not just about climate science, but about many other things uh, where we're, we're being asked to just let our our emotions guide, you know, follow your heart, the, yeah. the old Hollywood uh, dictum. And that's just not what's going to work well, because the, the, we need to make decisions based on truth, not just on, I wish this, or I would like that. We really need to make decisions based on truth. And as I point out in this article, which is yet to be published, uh, I actually just finished it a couple of hours ago, uh, as I point out in this, the hard data shows something very, very different. Hmm. Uh, the hard data show that sea level has been rising extremely slowly uh, around the world, global sea level. But in the South Pacific, in terms of sea level relative to the various land there, it's basically been not rising at all or rising so significant, so so slowly as to be uh, you know, just negligible. Mm. But what we also find, and this is, this is what's really crucial to test these claims. And it's, it's what's crucial to the fallacy of this new video, the final years of Majuro is that, uh, empirical studies show that the overwhelming majority of the low lying islands, the coral atolls all over the South Pacific and the Indian ocean, those are actually getting larger. They're not losing size. They're getting larger. And see, what happens is that people work on the basis of models. They'll say, okay, this model says that if we put so much more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, we'll warm the atmosphere by so much. And some, some of that heat will go into the oceans, and that will cause the oceans to expand a little bit, and that causes sea level rise. And if this island is so many inches above sea surface, then we know simple arithmetic tells us it will take so many years for the island to disappear. Yeah. That would be true if that's all that were, were relevant. But it isn't because it turns out that as sea level rises, corals grow upward to stay in the sunlight that they need to grow. Mm. Not only that, but also wave action and current action 
move uh, move material from the sea floor onto the shores of islands. And if that accretion and if the growth of the corals matches or exceeds the rate of the sea level rise, you can actually have islands growing instead mm. of shrinking, even though sea level is rising. Well, it turns out that for uh, over 80% of all of the islands uh, in the South Pacific and the, the Indian Ocean, the ones that people are worried about disappearing, for over 80% of all of them, they're growing in size and uh, essentially none are shrinking. Well, why would somebody who is preparing a projection not want to look carefully and think through consequences like that. I, I, I would have taken it for granted that that's part of scientific thinking. Well, you, w you would think so. Um, partly, it, it really is amazing how, how a narrow specialization can, can put blinders, can put, uh, you know, uh, with, with horses, sometimes you'll, you'll put these blinders on that keep them from seeing off to the sides, right? Narrow specialization in, in one or another field of science can put these blinders on people and they just don't think about things outside their own specialties. So I think that's part of it. Another part of it, frankly, is that there is a movement. There is a politically driven movement to use fears of climate change to promote goals toward uh, a, a change of how the international community works. I mean, your, your past experience in the United Nations uh, showed you, Alan, that uh, there are an awful lot of people out there who really want to change uh, the, the way the world works, yeah. who don't want to see a continuation, for instance, of, of, of free markets, free trade, of limited government, of the rule of law, things like this. They really want to substitute a, a much more planned and controlled global economy. And hey, if you can convince everybody that our use of, of uh, fossil fuels for energy is causing catastrophic climate change, and the only way to stop that is to turn over control of our global economy to central planners, hey, you've, you've got a good a good pathway there to your goal. So I think that's that's part of what motivates, frankly, the very poor scientific work that's being being shoved off to the public. If you take a step back, because as you're talking and as I have thought about uh, this over time, doesn't anybody have a concern that this way of approaching things as it becomes habitual actually degrades the quality of science that as a uh, world, as a civilization, whatever, we can expect? Um, because, uh, I mean, uh, th th that's why I was raising the question. One would think at one point a meticulous scientist is supposed to be trying to take account of all the variables that reflect a calculation they're trying to make. Uh, yeah. That's not something that's incidental. It's something that's essential to the scientific work. If yeah. one is neglecting that due to specialization or tendentious purpose, uh, doesn't that mean it's a degradation of the scientific discipline that's being passed on generation to generation? Absolutely. You know, the Nobel Prize winning physicist Richard Feynman said that the key to science is recognizing that no matter what your theory is, no matter how beautiful it is, no matter how smart you are, no matter how many people agree with you, the essence of science, the key to science, is comparing the predictions that arise out of your theory with real-world observation. And if the real-world observations contradict your predictions, then your theory is wrong. He also said that it is of the essence of science for anybody who, who creates a theory, who proposes a hypothesis, not to just look for evidence to support it, but to look even more carefully, much more thoroughly and carefully for evidence that would contradict it. Yes. And unfortunately, too many people just simply fall in love with their pet theories, and then all they try to do is to support them rather than uh, to find the evidence that might contradict them. There, there, was, there was one instance uh, about a decade ago of some, some climate scientists who put 
out a, a paper in a major referee journal. And some other scientists said, we would like access to your raw data and to your computer code so that we can see if we can replicate what you've done. Now, yeah. replication is of the very heart of science. Right. And the authors of the study responded by saying, why should we share it with you? All you would do is try to find problems in it and tear down what we've done. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's science, my friends. That is science. Well, see, I, I listened to you say that, and I'm thinking to myself, it's science, but it's also rational thought. Uh, yes. And, and I, I don't know. I, my wife and I sometimes have a little contretemps because I, I do have a habit sometimes when people say so. The first word out of my mouth is no but. The first word, yeah. no but. Uh, and, and it's because of a habit of mind inculcated from, well, my education, that before you accept something, you examine it. And so what exactly. your mind is doing is questioning. And the yeah. first response very often is going to be not, yes, I see it that way, but no, but over here you said this, and how does that affect that? Doesn't it affect your conclusion? So you're raising uh, objections, right? Uh, the other paradigm and you and of that I, would be in the courtroom or whatever. So yeah, many things you and I that share depend a on rational thought depend on that kind of self-challenging thought process. Yeah. Uh, and that's not being encouraged anymore? I thought it was indispensable. No, no. You know, Alan, you and I share a commitment to Jesus Christ who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and who also said, uh, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And the Apostle Paul, uh, great, great spreader of the Christian faith, wrote in 1 Thessalonians 5.21, test all things, hold fast what is good. Now, that's kind of, uh, if any Bible verse is my life verse, that would be it. Test mm. all things, hold mm. fast what is good. Mm. And unfortunately, too many people, I think, have just abandoned that challenge, uh, Partly, I suppose, because testing can be hard. It can be a little difficult to, to really dig through the reams and reams of information to find things that are really reliable. But we have to do it. If we don't, we will be led around by the nose uh, and we will lose our freedoms because it is only with truth that we enjoy freedom. See, and I think we're actually living through an example of that right now. Uh, because as I recall the sequence of events for this whole coronavirus business, uh, one of the things that eventually allowed them to drive us into the policies that have now tanked uh, uh, economies uh, all around the world um, yes. was a projection that was done by a fellow in Great Britain and it was uh, predicting massive uh, deaths and, and, and uh, um, the uh, massive in increases of infections and rapid spread and all of these kinds of things that would outpace the capacity of, our, of all the hospitals and so forth. Um, and those were the models that people started acting on, right? Yeah. Uh, even in defiance of the evidence, and also when they realized, once they started to get a little truer estimation from the Chinese, that they were working with a situation where infection had been going on for a longer time than they thought, right? Yes. And that meant mm -hmm. you had to take a larger denominator when you were making all of these calculations about what the rate of spread was that you were actually dealing with. And it didn't seem to matter very much because the paradigm was established and we kept dealing with the same narrative no matter what the facts then showed. Yeah. Uh, and I think we're dealing with it now as if science doesn't matter that much. Yeah, that's that's definitely true. Um, you know, the the early the early predictions were that the infection fatality rate or case fatality rate for COVID nineteen would be somewhere in the range of three to five percent. That's three to five out of every hundred people who would be infected would die. Mm. I mean, that is an extraordinarily high infection fatality rate, and it really is very very scary. Well, what we're now finding is that uh, that was based on a, a total misunderstanding, uh, a failure to have an accurate count of the number of infections. Now we're finding that even without the best medical treatment, uh, 
the infection fatality rate for COVID-19 is down somewhere around maybe 0.2 to 0.5%. That is far under a tenth of what they had been thinking. And then what we're also finding is that uh, the authorities in America anyway have resisted the use of what seems to be proving the most effective uh, drug therapy for COVID-19, and that is hydroxychloroquine, uh, coupled with zinc and azithromycin, Mm -hmm. uh, and administered early on. This has been showing tremendous results in countries all over the world. Uh, In fact, one of my colleagues, uh, Vijay Jayaraj, who's an Indian scientist, has recently written a column that will appear tomorrow in The Stream magazine, uh, where he he just recounts the, the actual performance of HCQ, hydroxychloroquine uh, treatments, in developing countries around the world. And the astonishing thing is this, Alan. You would think that with our advanced medical uh, facilities and our, our wonderful doctors and nurses and hospitals and all of this, our death rate, our fatality rate from COVID-19 would be much lower than in countries like India and uh, places all over sub-Saharan Africa and, and other parts of Asia and so on. The reality is that their infection fatality rates are much, much lower than ours. And what seems to be the one distinguishing factor? Almost all of them are making widespread use of hydroxychloroquine coupled with zinc and azithromycin. Uh, And they're doing it early on. The doses are very low. The cost is extremely low because HCQ is is a generic drug. It's produced all all over the world. Uh, it's you know just a couple bucks per uh, per tablet or less, uh, and this is this is having tremendous results. Whereas here in the United States, because the uh, the Food and Drug Administration has uh, refused to allow hydroxychloroquine to be prescribed for use on on COVID nineteen, our uh, our fatality rate is much higher. Uh, one article that I saw calculated that. If HCQ had been being used much more uh, widely in America than it actually has been, we could have reduced the the, the total deaths so far by 92%. Yeah. That's more than 9 out of 10 of the people who died wouldn't have died. Well, see, I, I actually think that, and I, and I haven't understood this in quite a while, when the whole thing first started and they were organizing the task force, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the general consensus was that if and when you were able to resort to a vaccine, it wasn't going to be for months. Right. Now, I remember a time when the primary concern, as in science overall, the primary concern was truth. The primary mm-hmm. concern in the health sector was to help improve or save, depending on what the situation was, life. Yeah. But the whole strategy that we ended up getting in ourselves involved with deprecated uh, life-saving. So that the, the focus, uh, because if you look at life-saving, the lead focus, the people you're going to be talking to every day, figure out what they need, what they're doing, what works, what doesn't work, get the word out so it can be used by other people. Wouldn't those be the frontline doctors, the people who are working on you the would patients? Think so. You would be finding out what was working. You'd be spreading that word around so lives would be saved, so the death rate would be kept down. In Absolutely. fact, the exact opposite's been going on. And if people are doing things that are successful at stopping the death, um, well, the, the frontline doctors who were just talking about hydroxychloroquine, uh, they're pulled off the internet, they're repressed, uh, and apparently, they're being threatened with withdrawal of their license and they're going to be fired and all of this sort of stuff. It's like we're in a situation where far from accepting the scientific discipline and looking to have, make, see, go after the observations of what's actually going on so you can put together a proper understanding of what's happening, 
they're repressing it so that more people will die. And, and, and with that thought, I'm going to ask that we pause for a minute here. We'll go out for a message and be right back. But I hope you all will be thinking about this because the conclusion, I think, is quite disturbing and startling uh, if you haven't thought of it before. We'll be right back. Podcasts are great when you're a multitasking person. You can listen to them around the house, when you're out in the car, when you take a walk. Now we have put our shows on to podcasts. And you can listen to Let's Talk America uh, on podcasts. You can find them at Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Anchor FM, and other apps. And while you're there, subscribe to our channel so you don't miss out on our new episodes. Thanks for listening and supporting us. Together, we're changing the world. Want more IMTV episodes? We are now streaming through Roku. Roku is a device that enables you to stream entertainment to your TV through your internet provider. The starting price is only $29, and you can purchase one either online or through your local electronics retailer. It's easy to use, and you won't have to worry about missing any more IMTV episodes. IMTV, changing the world. Now, to those of you who are watching, I, I, I hope you followed the, the, the path of the discussion, because I think it's kind of fascinating. Uh, we think of things these days, and I think we're encouraged to think of them in little boxes. You know, there's the climate change things over here, and there's the COVID virus over here, uh, and there's the uh, uh, Trump uh, and, and the campaign and the election and the purposes and all of this, uh, and then there's civil rights issues that are coming up, and uh, uh, constitutional rights, and it's all separate things, and everybody deals with their own little part of the, uh, the, the, the puzzle, and nobody's uh, taking a moment to see exactly what the picture is, even though it might help to put the puzzle together if you could figure that out. Leave that aside. Uh, and that's what we're being encouraged to do. Uh, and just now, we, we kind of came to a fact that has, uh, I've given it a lot of thought uh, about why it is that in the whole approach that's been taken, people have been encouraged to wait for the vaccine, the spotlight has been taken off of the actual efforts to save life, and we're being encouraged, therefore, to focus on the increased uh, rate of infections and other things like wearing masks and going with the narrative that that's helping uh, uh, everybody, even though it's, uh, there are a lot of question marks uh, behind whether that's true, how it could be true, uh, and so forth and so on. But then you have to start thinking, Kyle, what would be the motive for steering us in a direction that takes the spotlight off what was presented in the beginning, and it was used to motivate people, as the reason we all wanted to do what was necessary, find out the truth, make sacrifices if we have to, so we could take stock and make sure our parents and our grandparents and other vulnerable people didn't die, uh, and then we get on with our business. I think a lot of people thought, well, that makes sense. I'm willing to make a little sacrifice for that. Let's, let's go ahead. The notion that you would then come to a point where you and I are sitting here trying to figure out why they may be letting people die rather than spreading the word about useful therapy, suppressing them instead of spreading the word, that raises the specter of a manipulation of the public mind with a narrative that's meant to terrorize side by side with an actual approach that is actually meant to prove more deadly than the virus itself. Boy, Alan, you know, one really hates to tread on that territory. I know you hate to tread on that territory because, you know, it's, you just don't like to think that there are people out there in actual positions of authority, positions of, of great influence, positions of trust in our government, right. who would want to do something like that? Um, you know, here I am, I'm, I'm a Christian theologian, and my Christian theology tells me that, that uh, every one of us is infested with sin, and our founding fathers wove that understanding into our Constitution when they insisted that we had to have uh, division of, of, of power uh, and, and uh, you know, uh, 
a balance of powers among the different parts of the government so that they would check each other, you know, checks and balances. Uh, and, and so I, I shouldn't find it that distasteful to go that way. But it's really hard not to. When I think of the ease with which our, our governing authorities at all levels, federal, state, local, have adopted measures which uh, are, are so clearly very harmful to people uh, in shutting down so many businesses, in uh, essentially keeping people trapped at home, uh, insisting on their wearing masks that not only don't do very, very much good for curbing the spread of the virus, but actually can be very unhealthy because they themselves collect the germs that that are diffuse in us in every breath, but bit by bit we build them up in our masks. And mm -hmm. you know, how many people throw away a mask after they've used it for an hour or two? No, people reuse the same mask again and again. But you know what surgeons do with surgical masks? They throw them in the in the hazardous waste bins yeah. of the hospitals, yeah. and they get incinerated. Yeah. Uh, you know, all of these things are are so contrary to a sound understanding of risk reduction. It's almost as if the aim has been, instead of to reduce the risks from the virus, to increase those risks by, by outlawing the use of the most effective uh, therapies for them, mm -hmm. and to, to, to add new risks through the economic lockdowns that have already uh, contracted our economy at a at a rate that is higher than any that we've ever, ever seen, seen since right. we began measuring it in 1947. Uh, we've never had a one quarter uh, re reduction of GDP of nine percent before, and when you analyze annualize that, it comes to a GDP reduction that would be 30 percent, uh, slightly over. 30%. We've never seen anything like this before. Right. And there have been plenty of studies by economists that show us, okay, for every, say, $100 million lost to the economy, how many excess deaths occur for a variety of different reasons. The people can no longer afford medical care. They lose their hope and they begin to abuse opioid drugs. They, they commit, commit suicide. suicide. Yeah. You increase uh, domestic violence. All sorts of different causes come in. But the answer is that the, the lockdowns that we've had, I believe, I've, I've read quite a few of the different studies on this. I believe that the lockdowns that we've had could very easily wind up generating more excess deaths than the virus itself, even though we're not taking the best uh, efforts to curb the deaths from the virus, even right. though we're not using the best therapies. Right. Uh, it's, it's just uh, heartbreaking and truly alarming. Well, see, uh, there's a juxtaposition of certain things, though, that naturally leads one to be a little suspicious. Um, I was listening the other day to, uh, I think it was something I saw on my cell phone, it was an NBC report, uh, and they purported to have done tests with the masks because they were pushing the line, got to wear your mask because that's vital. And yeah. they done, and, and, and so they were breathing onto surfaces through the mask in order to show the effectiveness of the mask at pre preventing any nastiness from getting out and being on the surface. And so uh, they perform these tests, and the r reporter who has written the story reports that uh, after the test, no bacteria were found on the surfaces. And I couldn't help in the back of my mind but say, but what do bacteria have to do with this? Yeah. We're in the middle of a crisis that's caused by a virus. Not a bacterium. And, uh, bac bacteria are generally run a, a, a thousand times larger than viruses. Viruses are much smaller than bacteria by yeah. and large. I mean, there are, there have been instances of some uh, uh, species of bacteria, that, uh, of virus that uh, get almost as big as bacteria, but uh, uh, aren't, aren't really there. But uh, by and large, apart from those flukes, you're dealing with something that is orders of magnitude smaller, right? Yeah. Yeah. 
than a bacteria. So what does the effectiveness of the mask uh, against bacteria have to do with the present situation? It's, uh, wouldn't uh, you have to kind of consciously sell a lie to ignore a simple fact like that? Uh, that, I'm sorry, is now readily available because we've been talking so much about yeah. viruses and why the things that work on bacteria don't work on viruses and how viruses aren't even like bacteria living things, there's something else. A lot of people have heard this by now. And yet they're still uh. trying to make an effort to prove that these things are effective. Um, when they're probably making no difference. And now, of course, governments that didn't go this route are coming out with their statistics to show that they didn't do all of this stuff and they're actually doing better at containing uh, the infection and preventing deaths, uh, most importantly. Um, and then there's the suspicion that somebody might have an ax to grind. I, I, could we show the Bill Gates thing? I want to share with you this little clip from an interview that was done where Bill Gates was asked about the economic effect and how long it would go on and what the consequences might be and so forth and so on, uh, and, and, uh, and, and whether or not you know, this was really a good trade-off. And this is what he said. Listen to this. Act like you have a choice. People don't feel like going to the stadium uh, when they might get infected. You know, it, it's not the government who's saying, okay, just ignore this disease and, you know, people are deeply affected by seeing these deaths, by knowing they could be part of the transmission chain and, you know, old people, uh, their parents, their grandparents could be affected by this. And so you don't, you know, you don't get to say, uh, ignore uh, what's going on here. There, are, there will be the ability, particularly in rich countries, to open up if things are done well over the next few months. But for the world at large, normalcy only returns when we've largely vaccinated the entire global population. Now, can you see that? I mean, and, and part of my problem when I heard that was aside from the fact that, you know, people ought to know that he does have an interest in pushing vaccines because he's actually heavily invested in all of that. He also has an interest in exploiting vaccines because he's been caught with his hand in the cookie jar of human life, uh, testing through vaccines, the use of vaccines to, without their knowledge, sterilize people in Africa and do other stuff. Now, he's also somebody who says that the population of the world has to be re reduced from where it is now, which is what, um, eight billion people or more about, about seven and a half down billion. to maybe a billion maybe less and i always asked when i saw that ted talks and he was talking about this stuff i said how do you accomplish that with the ordinary increase of humanity and so forth and so on i think you're running in a race you're bound to lose against the expansion of that population unless you're going to kill an awful lot of people and suddenly we've got this guy talking about giving everybody in the world the vaccine, and by the way, not rigorously testing it to make sure it's not gonna have anything harmful in it and make sure nobody's, uh, no, because all that's been suspended, the, they're immune from lawsuits, so if there are nasty things in there that slip by, uh, you can't even sue them. This would, wouldn't this be a perfect opportunity for somebody scheming against the humanity? to strike a decisive blow in the direction of what they claim as an indispensable necessity. I think it should at least cross our minds that this doesn't look like a safe bridge to walk on. Yeah, uh, I, I think it certainly is a possibility. Unfortunately, I can't comment on what uh, Bill Gates said in that video because although I could see it all, oh, you didn't none of it. the sound came through to me. Oh, uh, but, what happened yesterday? When, uh, but uh, nonetheless, you know, I know that Bill Gates does think that we need to have a much well, smaller population the most in, the, important in the world. Thing, the most important thing he said was right at the end. He said that we cannot return to normalcy until everybody yeah. in the globe has been vaccinated against this virus. And you hear yeah. that, and aside from the time frame that, that will, would probably take even your all-out effort, and of course, the enormous cost that that's going to involve in getting it done throughout the world, but uh, that, that again is, 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 is perhaps negligible. Uh, you neglect all of 
of uh, those kinds of factors, and you're still dealing with the reality that whatever vaccine comes forward is only going to be useful for a limited amount of time before we'll need another one to deal with the mutations. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I, I think a part of what's happening here is that people like Bill Gates are preying on the ignorance of the general public when it comes to the, the kinds of risks that come with various different diseases. For example, in America, even during the time of COVID-19, the, the death rate from pneumonia without COVID-19 has been higher than the death rate from COVID-19. We've had more deaths from pneumonia during this period than from COVID-19. In India, as an example, I mean, this is a country with 1.3 billion people. All the way through the whole period of the COVID-19 pandemic, tuberculosis deaths have outnumbered COVID-19 deaths. Now, if pneumonia and tuberculosis are you know, bring a higher risk of death than COVID-19, how come we're not being told we need to develop a vaccine for these and that vaccine needs to be pushed on everybody in the world? Mm -hmm. It's because these are old diseases that people are accustomed to and what's familiar doesn't tend to be so scary. I mean, that's just part of human psychology. This new disease which really is not all that terribly new. It's just one more variety of coronavirus. And most mm -hmm. colds, most common colds, are caused by types of the coronavirus. But this supposedly new disease, somewhat new disease, is unfamiliar, and therefore it's more scary. So granted that we see people frightened, we can manipulate their fear to get them to submit to things that they would never dream of submitting to otherwise. I mean, how many people around you do, uh, do you know who are saying, oh, we need a vaccine for everybody in the world against pneumonia. We need right. a vaccine for everybody in the world against tuberculosis. And well, those aren't even the, the worst. He, he's supposed to be an intelligent guy. Um, if he's saying stuff like this, and he does have a purpose, don't we yeah. have to think through the, what that purpose is apart from the virus, because it can't be the virus. It's not actually the most efficient, effective way to deal with the threat of the virus. What we're doing is a roundabout way of dealing with something that won't even deal with it on anything like a permanent basis. Uh, if you were to develop a therapy, and um, I'm not sure about how hydroxychloroquine, I, I don't recall about it, but the, at Hebrew University, they've come up with something that actually interferes with the coronavirus's ability to get in there and start to reproduce other coronaviruses at a level that goes across the coronavirus strain, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. the likelihood that you'd get something that would escape the effect of what they've done is, is slim. Uh, I myself am familiar with uh, something that's used to disinfect water, chlorine dioxide. Yeah. And it turns yeah. out that when it's used uh, properly, you know, following the proper limits and everything, uh, it will kill things in your body. Um, mm -hmm. I've been taking it for months. Um, no sign of coronavirus, and in fact, I'm, I'm going from strength to strength uh, because <laughs> of the effect that it's apparently having, cleaning out your system of viruses, bacteria, heavy metals, various things. It's a cleanser, as they call it. Um, and when you get into the science of it, it's also something that increases your ability to um, have available oxygen for your cells. So that addresses mm -hmm. the uh, serious respiratory syndrome if you happen to be in that position. Um, and, and, and one fellow in Germany has developed a way of, of injecting it uh, so that it gets into the hemoglobin and will help the people who are suffering from the severe respiratory system so that the, how can I put it, the chemical uh, uh, interaction is producing oxygen so that despite the deficiency of the lungs, breathing in, uh, ventilator or not, you actually survive long enough for the antibodies to be reproduced, which is what saves people. It's the immune system yes. that ultimately saves you. But it also has the effect that its own oxidation process also interferes with the virus, and so it stops the virus from yeah. spreading. Um, now, yeah. I would think, 
leave aside questions and what needs to be done to examine, wouldn't your first priority be to look at everything? I mean, what if, because of this, you actually stumble across something that can have uses that are going to be more general? Wouldn't that be a great boon to mankind? Wouldn't that be one of those things that are written about in the history books? They were looking to affect that, but they also affected these half a dozen things and so forth and so on. Penicillin and antibiotics came out of just such a mindset. But that mindset now seems to be erased because people like Bill Gates and others, um, among other things, have a stake in making billions of dollars. Final point, is it a coincidence? that we're waiting so that whatever is done will put billions into the pockets of the pharmaceutical companies and other wealthy types. Uh, we're waiting for that to happen. And while we wait, the economy crashes, and we do something that the founders of this country thought should never be allowed to happen. We accumulate so much debt that we'll be in danger of being obviously unable to pay it off and, and maybe yeah. have to default, which would destroy the integrity of our system of government. So you not only yes. are attacking us in our pocketbooks, you're attacking the very stability of our regime of self-government. That looks like the yeah. kind of strategic purpose that souls serves so many goals for people wicked enough to aspire to that kind of totalitarian power that they are saying to themselves, yep, we figured it out. We can get America out of the picture. They were in the way of all this totalitarian tyranny, not only on the right-wing side, fascism and Nazism, but on the left-wing side, Stalinism and Maoism, and, and, and yet they're still looking for a way to bring us down. Have they found it? Well, I, I hope not, but certainly the, uh, the massive accumulation of debt and the I think the tremendous inflationary effect of just making new money out of thin air, uh, just simply decreeing uh, on the part of the Fed that suddenly we have all these new dollars that we're going to pour into the economy uh, in the, the so-called stimulus, which is not stimulus at all. It's just going directly to consumers. Um, this, is, uh, this is a recipe for economic disaster. Uh, you know, it's, it's one of the most fundamental principles in economics that, that supply and demand are integrally related to each other and they control price. Mm. And as the supply of any commodity rises relative to demand for it, price must fall. Well, the dollar is a commodity. The mm. dollar is just something that's used in exchange. As the supply rises relative to demand, the price of that dollar, meaning how many you know, pounds of, of apples it can buy or how, you know, what size of SUV it can buy or anything else, the price of that dollar has got to fall. We are, I believe, in, in, uh, in danger if we don't turn this policy around, and I just was reading a, a major article from the uh, American Institute for Economic Research uh, earlier this morning, uh, we're in serious danger if we don't turn this expansionary monetary policy around quickly of moving into, in the short term, 6 to 9% annual inflation rate, but in the long term, possibly a much higher inflation rate. You know, it was, it was uh, hyperinflation that, uh, that drove France to its knees during the period of the French Revolution back in the late 1800s. 1700s. It was hyperinflation that uh, brought Germany to the point where people were willing to turn to the Nazis for leadership. Hyperinflation has destroyed many governments through centuries. Uh, and, and I think we're it's in serious risk of seeing that come about from the Fed's policies, as, as well as the obliteration, as you mentioned, of our reputation for being able to pay our debts. You know, we don't call it credit for nothing. That term comes from the Latin credire, which, is, uh, which refers to believing, to, to, to uh, finding something credible. And when you reach the point where your debt what is, is so much larger than your revenues can ever service, then you lose all credit. You lose all credibility.
And when that happens, you stop being a, a significant player on the world stage. And for a century and a half now, the United States has been one of the, the most important players, and for the last 50 years, 60 years, the most important player on the world stage. We have been responsible for keeping the peace around much of the world. We will not be able to continue to do that if we continue on the path we're on now. Well, sadly, I, I think we may be on the verge of not only surrendering that position, but domestically watching our Absolutely. institutions subverted by what appears to be an effort coordinated with at least the environment being created by the health crisis uh, to again add to the uncertainty of this nation's future and of the courage our people are liable to be able to show as we try to deal with it. Um, well, as always, uh, I think we went on a journey today that uh, started uh, looking at climate change and the degradation of scientific discipline and ended up looking at some of the consequences that arise when we as a people uh, turn away from the standard of our character discipline and rational discipline in order to go after shibboleths that uh, actually don't correspond to reality in the sense that we were founded to uh, respect, which is the reality based upon the word and will of God. Um, yeah. I always get back to that, of course, because I think at the end of the day, uh, the heart that we need in this is a heart for God. That's where we got our courage yes. throughout our history. It's where we'll get it to deal with this situation. It's also where we got a lot of our smarts, you know, because uh, uh, at the end of the day, who is the font of wisdom? You know, who knows how things really work? Well, just like the uh, computer programmer generally knows what's going to happen when you press that button, God knows it too. Uh, and I think our forgetting of that is dumbing us down to a point that may lead to our self-destruction. Ponder that and then join us again here at Let's Talk America.